morning, everybody. As you may have noticed, I am not Brian Nolder. I apologize for the, uh, we did not get the announcement out in the weekly in time, but uh, happy to be here again, bringing, this is now part four of our Ruth series, and today we're going to be looking at chapter three. And so I will be doing my best to keep it clean um, without pulling any of the punches of what this text has for us, because it's often misunderstood, or at least not fully understood, and there's a lot here. So it's going to be it's going to be great. We're going to I enjoy going to look forward to digging into it with you all. Just to orient ourselves in the story, where are we in the narrative? If you haven't, if this is your first time with us. Book of Ruth set in the time of the judges. Israel is in rebellion. And the ironically named, my God is king, decides he's bugging out. Him and his wife Pleasant, Naomi, go and live with the enemy. And they meet with one calamity after another until Naomi is alone. She comes back. She tries to keep her daughter-in-law Ruth from coming with her, but Ruth insists. They come back and... God brings them to a wealthy relative and generous relative named Boaz, and Ruth avails herself of hard work, and we got to study some about biblical authority and generosity and charity last time. And where we left off is they still have some needs, right? God has started to provide And Naomi has started to have a change of heart, but they still need long-term provision in the form of food, long-term safety, husband for Ruth, an heir for Naomi, and in the broader context of the book of Judges, they need a king for the people of Israel. This is the time when there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So... As we look at this text, as I've said, this is one of the texts of the Bible that you see oft misinterpreted. You'll see some people who, to whom the book of Ruth is just kind of a biblical, you know, like Jane Austen-esque love story. You see some people that are like, well, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. Uh, like, have you ever read the book of Ruth? And you, that's out there. Uh, so you'll, you'll find a, a lot of misinterpretations of it, but we're going get to get to dig into it today. So with those, those three needs, Ruth needs a husband, Naomi needs an heir. Remember, she's lost everything. She's essentially lost her place in the people of God. She's back in the land, but her, her line is effectively dead. Her, her place in the people of God is terminal. And Israel is, of course, suffering without a king. With all that in mind, let's read the third chapter of Ruth. Once again, this is essentially the ESV text with a few minor uh, translation edits of my own. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... 
Should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, you will know the place where he lies. Then go in and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you have said I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. All that you have said I will do for you, for all the gates of my people know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who are you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray and ask God's guidance. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word and for this beautiful and encouraging narrative. We pray that you would give us clear minds to understand the lessons that you would teach us from it and that you would protect me from error as I open it for us, and that we would be taught by it. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. So we're looking at this plan of Naomi's. First thing to notice is the context, which is Naomi is doing this for Ruth. She starts out, and she says... Should I not seek rest for you? Which is compelling because up to this point in the narrative, Naomi's been fairly, you know, had had a lot of kind of self-pity. But now there's this turn. There's this turn of the corner. The last time she showed concern for Ruth, it was 
very pragmatic and godless. It was go back and be a Moabite, because there at least you'll have a husband. Now, she's once again seeking security for Ruth, but amongst the people of God. And this is, this is significant because the, the position that Ruth is in is incredibly perilous. Naomi is elderly at this point, and if Naomi dies, Ruth, there's no welfare state, social security. Naomi, or Ruth, is an unattached Moabite widow living in the land of Israel, and the Moabites are not the good guys. They've been fighting a war with Israel. They are enemies. So Naomi's doing something very kind and looking out for Ruth. Now, we'll look at kind of how she goes about doing that and whether or not that's something we want to copy. But there are lessons even in what Naomi is setting out to do here. So that the whole context of this is, remember Boaz, rich, nice guy, you've been with his young women, he's winnowing tonight. So what's, what's winnowing? What's the symbology there? Remember how we were talking about last time I brought in that sickle? We talked about how they would cut the grain and lay it in stacks. Well, after they pulled it all together, they would take it to a place called the threshing floor. And that's how they would harvest grain back before they had combines. They still harvest grain in parts of the world this way, where they don't have mechanized agriculture. And you beat the grain or you run some sort of a sled over it, and that separates all the grain out from the sort of the grassy, stocky part. But then you still have to get the the grain berries out of the chaff. And if you don't have fans and separators, that's hard to do. So what they would do is they would take threshing floors, which is basically a big flat stone area. It's paved or sealed somehow, and it's really flat. And it's normally on kind of a, on a on an area where the wind comes through. And in the Mediterranean, they get these breezes that start in the afternoon and they go through into the evening. And they would take the grain and they would throw, they would have these forks and they would throw the grain and the chaff up into the air. And the wind blows the chaff away, and the grain falls back. So you got to have the right speed of wind. It's kind of a thing you got to wait, wait for, because if you don't have enough wind, then you're just wasting your time throwing grain and chaff up, and you still have grain and chaff. If you have too much wind, if it's too strong, then you don't have grain or chaff, and your grain is all over there. So you got to have the right speed, and so that's why they would, they would typically winnow in the starting in the evening. And this is a really festive time because they're going to have food. This is the end of the harvest season. Security has arrived. And there's a lot of symbolism that's not to be missed with threshing floors. Now, we're we're, we're very kind of symbolically oriented and good at appreciating details. And I want to I want to pause for a moment and talk about why it's so important to appreciate the symbolism in Scripture, because we do this everywhere else. You ever, you ever watch like sports and you hear the color commentator, right? Some guy makes a play, and there's that, that guy who's like, that's right, Bob, and 
the last time, this is significant because the last time he scored 42 points, it was in the state championship game. And so I know that's really meaningful for him. Like, well, for one thing, like, how do you even know that, right? But, but people do. Those details matter, and they, they provide color. They don't change what you're seeing, but they provide that texture. Or if you listen, you ever listen to music through really good headphones or speakers, and you hear a part of a song that you like, and, wow, I never heard that part before, and now you listen for it. Or you watch a movie, and you notice, oh, in the background, this symbol or this character's doing this. We're wired to pick up on all of those details. And yet, we often read God's word and don't notice. Like, why is that always being mentioned? Is that just random? Well, what happens at threshing floors? Let's look at threshing floors. So we talked about what they were. We know they were associated with harvests and blessing. God in, in Joel talks about, you know, blessing the fruit of the threshing floor. So there's that. The negative associations in Hosea, they talk about the wages of a prostitute on every, Israel loving the wages of a prostitute on every threshing floor. There's a lot of evidence there was a, a big association with threshing floors and prostitution because of all of the wealth that was represented there. But in scripture, threshing floors are associated with a couple of things, one of which is judgment. When the ark was coming to Jerusalem the first time, David was bringing it back. You remember the story? The ox cart, they put it on a cart, and we're supposed to put it on a cart, but it's on a cart, and it, the cart jostles, and the ark's going to fall off. And Uzzah puts out his hand. He's going to stop that ark from falling off. God struck him dead at a threshing floor. It says that was at the threshing floor of Nacon that that happened. When Micaiah prophesied against Ahab, for Ahab was killed in battle, where were Ahab and the king of Judah? They were wearing their royal robes and sitting on a threshing floor. Those aren't details that are there just randomly. You also see deliverance associated with threshing floors. Now, it's kind of a poor threshing floor. Gideon has made his wine press into a threshing floor. Not a very effective one. He's doing that to hide hide from the Midianites. But he's trying to do his best to thresh in a wine press. When God comes and says, I am going to deliver my people. Very significant one is when David orders the illegal census and God brings a plague on the people of Israel and the destroying angel is coming through and David sees him and then the angel stops. David cries out for mercy from God, and the angel stops at the threshing floor. He stops at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, and that threshing floor would become very significant because that is the place where Solomon built the temple. So these are 
these are significant details. Threshing floors are also mentioned in the New Testament. John the Baptist, speaking of Christ, says he will, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That throwing up in the air, God is winnowing as well. Threshing floors are places where worth and worthlessness are revealed and separated. So when, that's, a, that's an important kind of textual detail to keep in mind as we, as we look at this. All right, so now let's look in the details of the plan, right? So verse 3, what she say? Three, three, she's got these three terse imperatives. It's really short, short. It's just like wash, anoint, place your cloak on you. So what's, what's going on there? Wash, anoint, place. Anoint shouldn't necessarily be understood in some kind of priestly sense. Back in those days, it was a big part of your kind of general hygiene is once you've washed, you'd put, put some like perfumed olive oil on yourself, put it on your skin. But there's, there's a couple of places in Scripture that have very similar language. We're going to look at two of those. The first one is in Ezekiel 16. This is another one of those kind of hair-raising passages, but this is scripture, and it says, this is God speaking figuratively of Israel, and he says, when I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age of, for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord Yahweh, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. That's very similar, except the word used in Ruth is a little bit more like just cloak. And the word used in Ezekiel refers to like embroidered wedding garments. There's another one that has even more similar language to what's used in Ruth, and that is in 2 Samuel, after David's child, the product of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, dies, and he is informed. It says, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, same word, and he went into the house of Yahweh and worshiped. So the symbolism here could be either a bride coming to her husband, there's some sense in which that is certainly possible from the text. The other one is a kind of moving on, right? Ruth is a widow. It's possible she's wearing sort of a habit of widowhood. So a moving on from that of like, I'm back on the market. Could be both, right? And then verse four, we see that this is a secret mission. Right, so there's significance to don't let yourself be known until this point. So what is the objective? What is the point? What, what, are they, what is Naomi hoping to accomplish with this? Hotly debated. One opinion is that it's a leveret marriage. And we'll get into leveret marriage more next time. Leveret marriage was this custom 
we'll, we'll, we'll explore what's behind it. it. Sounds very odd to our ears. Where if a man died having no child, his brother was supposed to marry his wife to raise up a child on his behalf so that he would have an heir. I don't think that that's what's going on here directly because Boaz is not Elimelech's brother. That's made clear. He's a relative, but if he was, given that Boaz was a righteous man and one who followed the law, Naomi and Ruth would have just sort of walked up and been like, all right, like, do your duty. None of this clandestine stuff would have kind of been in the cards. It's possible that this is some sort of established weird tradition whereby a woman could propose marriage to a man. Like, well, you got to do it in the middle of the night, the threshing floor, and you uncover the feet, you you know. People suggest that because Naomi says, then he will tell you what to do. In other words, people suggest like, well, he will know the other part of this thing. Boaz's response doesn't really indicate that. And also, the narrator of Ruth, the person who wrote it down, goes out of their way to explain kind of weird traditions to us. So I don't think that's very plausible because, as we'll see in the next chapter, when there's something where you're like, what, the the sandal? I mean, and he's like, oh, this, you know, seems weird. This is what they did. So I, I I don't think that is plausible. Some people suggest that Naomi was trying to trap Boaz, because there were laws that said that fornication had to lead to marriage. I don't think that fits with either Boaz's character, and it certainly didn't fit with the times. I think that's a lot of us reading our own cultural contexts into the scenario. This is the time of the judges. Like God had told them what they should do, but in general, this is relying on the individual righteousness of any given man to follow God's law. The cultural standards are not giving Naomi and Ruth, you know, they don't have have any cards to play. They don't have anything on Boaz. So that doesn't seem seem plausible. I think the, the explanation that is plausible is Naomi wanted Boaz to see Ruth as marriageable material and wanted him to take Ruth as his wife or as one of his wives. You say, wives? Wow. It's possible that he was single, but this time, like the idea, if it was true in, in, uh, in Austin's day that a, a single man of good fortune must be in want of a wife, it was doubly true back then in a subsistence economy. So the odds of him still being single at this point in his life are are extremely slim. It's possible he was a widower. That's actually the Jewish tradition. Can't always go with Jewish tradition, but that's the Jewish tradition is that he was a widower. Um, And if not, polygamy was not forbidden at this time. So I know, again, we're, we're we're getting weird here, but we'll look into that in Leveret Marriage a little bit more next in when we look at chapter four. But either way, this is a bold ask. Boaz is an, a respected elder of his people. He's a man of means. He's a pillar of the community. 
and she is an impoverished Moabite widow. So this is a very bold marriage proposal. And so Naomi's approach is, we've already seen he's a generous man. He's kind. He has affection towards Ruth. Let's put her at her best when he's most likely to be in a good mood. Let's have him be alone so that he doesn't feel pressured. So there's nothing on her, nothing on him. Let's have her at her best. Let's have him at his most agreeable. One commentator humorously said that Naomi was putting the idea into his head by putting Ruth into his bed. That's what I thought was witty. But, all right, so first, this passage is one of those things we call descriptive, not prescriptive. I don't want anybody coming out of this and saying that you heard that the the solution for singleness is to find a wealthy, good-natured old man and then, you know, go to him in the middle of the night. But, 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 right, because it is, it is dangerous and, to our ears, foolish, right? Not wise. For one thing, just the physical dangers, even if Boaz is a perfect gentleman, Going there in the middle of the night, Ruth is taking a tremendous risk to be out a, a woman alone in the middle of the night. We, I mean, we've read the book of Judges, right? We know how dangerous this is. And there's also the reputational damage. If she's spotted a woman in the middle of the night at a threshing floor, everybody is going to know. They're going to have strong suggestions of what her occupation is, and that's going to destroy her, her reputation in the community. So she's taking a tremendous risk. And yet, what does she say? All that you have said, I will do. Very simple. And remember that phrase, because that's going to come back. But this should shock us into thinking, because this level of submission is really incredible. Like, everybody likes what ifs what if scenarios, right? Particularly kids, right? Obey your parents. Well, what if they tell me to go to a strange man's house in the middle of the night? Yeah, what if? (laughs) All that you have said, I will do. We do not take God's word when it speaks about submission to authority seriously enough. And I am not in any way abetting parental abuse, authority, abuse of authority. But we don't act like God can work through means, even imperfect means or even unrighteous means. I mean, obviously, if somebody tells you to commit a sin, you obey man rather than God, or you obey God rather than man, right? But... In Ephesians, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, again, right, there's, that, there's, there's a commandment for author, warning authorities against an abuse of their power, and they would be held responsible, but what's told to those of us who are under authority? God can work through these means, and we'll see powerfully 
how he works through this crazy idea of Naomi's and how through the Holy Spirit and Ruth's actions, this turns out even more glorious than Naomi intended. But we are far too focused on weaseling out of authority. You hear, you hear like you go on social media, right? And somebody's talking about their parents or their boss or, and you don't hear a lot of questions. What you, what you mostly hear is, oh, that's so terrible. You should never submit to something like that. Those people sound terrible. Like kind of looking for excuses to get out of any particular situation instead of asking, how is God using this trial to make me more like Christ? Because that is the goal. So I think that's something very much for us to consider. And and a situation, a what-if scenario like this provides an incredible opportunity uh, to do that. So that being said, everybody wonders, right? We know what the plan is. We think we know what the objective of the plan is. What did Naomi think was going to happen that night? She says, he'll tell you what to do. Uh, everybody wonders and wrestles with this question. It's very, very reasonable. And it's because it's this, he'll tell you what you should do. Super ambiguous, right? So you're like, so? It's possible. Some people posit that Naomi's just kind of being faithless and pragmatic. This is that like, well, Moabites will be Moabites, and I got me a Moabite, so let's have her take care of this the Moabite way. And we'll get into a little bit more what that Moabite way is. I don't think that's likely because you have to follow the arc of the narrative, and Naomi is seeking this for Ruth's benefit, and Naomi has had a change of heart at this point in the story. So I don't, I don't think that. It also doesn't really fit with what we know of Boaz and his character. I think this is Naomi taking a major step of faith and relying on Boaz's character and what we know about him. And like I said, she's still kind of working with his, you know, who he is as a man of like, let's put her at her best, him at his most agreeable. I think that's the most plausible. But at the end of the day, that's not the point. It's left ambiguous for a reason because the point is not what Naomi expected would happen. The point is what we, the reader, right, the the. the context of the narrative, what we should expect to happen. And I'll let you guys, I'm going to talk about that, and you guys have to figure that out. I'm going to maintain that what the author is suggesting we should expect is very clear because of all the context and all of the motif. This passage crackles with sexual tension and motif. Who were the Moabites? Where did they come from? Lot's daughters, Lot's faithless daughters who needed an heir, got him drunk, and that's how they got an heir. So the people of Moab are literally descended from an incestuous relationship that initiated in a context not unlike the one that we see described. On top of that, it carried on. In the book of Numbers, 
We read, while Israel lived at Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And they lead them away to worship the Baal of Peor. And there's this, you know, the plague on the people and Phineas takes a spear and ends it. You know, it's this whole saga. But the people of Israel remember that. These are not the good guys and they are not the good girls, let me tell you. We already have the symbolism I talked about with threshing floors and prostitution. And then, right, tying even more into this, where the Moabites come from, she says, wait till he's finished eating and drinking. Wait until after that, then go in, right? And there's even more. The words used, a lot of the words used in this passage are Hebrew euphemisms, When he lies down, you will know the place where he lies. Both of those words are euphemisms. Then go in, that's a euphemism. Uncover, literally undress, the place of his feet. Now place of his feet, it's not a direct. Regal, Hebrew word for foot, is a euphemism for different part of the anatomy. So none of this is direct. It's beautifully, it's elegantly suggestive without being explicit. But it's full of suggestion. So as the readers, we're supposed to see a kind of inevitability to what's going to happen. And what are the stakes, right? Certainly, they fall to temptation. It's a violation of God's law. It's a violation of, you know, Exodus, you shall not commit adultery in the spirit, if not the letter. We know that fornication is a sin from the rest of Scripture. And even from the Old Covenant, there's the text. This is, again, when I was talking about the trapping earlier in Deuteronomy where he says, God says, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So this is not transactional. This is punitive. They were not to engage in sexuality outside of marriage, just as we are forbidden to do so today. It wasn't a capital crime. Fornication was not. But it, it would have destroyed Boaz's reputation and certainly undermined Ruth's character. And what's more, like, if that happens, the best case is, like, Ruth becomes Boaz's trophy wife. Right? There's nothing for Naomi in any of this. So the stakes, that's the stakes. That's the inevitability of the, of the, the narrative, of the sort of context, and that's the stakes. So we're all on the edge of our seats. What's going to happen? In verses 6 through 8, nothing. There's nothing in the text that suggests anything untoward happened. Hebrew has a lot of euphemisms, that could have been employed for saying something happened, they're not used. 
It's just she went in and did exactly what her mother-in-law said. Waited until he finished, went up, uncovered the place of his feet, and lay down. There's some people that suggest that Ruth is kind of being a little bit of an Amelia Bedelia here. I don't know if that's true because, again, we don't know exactly what Naomi intended to happen. But there's a little bit of, you know, you know, you go do the thing and, and then she just literally, woodenly, right, uncovers his feet and lays down. So what's Boaz's reaction, right? He rolls over in the middle of the night and behold, a woman at his feet. And you see it in his, his response. It'd be easy to read your English translation and be like, who are you? Hebrew is, is much more evocative. Miat! <laughs> it's very terse. <laughs> he was not expecting this. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, well, the, all right. Every time a, a woman is, you know, come to me while I'm guarding my pile of barley at the threshing floor in the middle of the night, right? And what's, what's Ruth's answer? She says, Very humble, she says. Essentially, I am your slave wife, Ruth. It's a servant, slave wife, concubine. It's not the same word that she used in chapter 2 when she said, You've spoken kindly to your maidservant, though you are not, I am not like one of your maidservants. This word suggests that that word basically kind of refers to somebody who would serve in the household. This refers to somebody who belongs to somebody else, but is more, you know, in like the position of a of a wife. So it's it's she's sort of upgrading how she's referring to herself in Boaz's eyes in in this request so it's and and it's a very I mean it's a very humble self-designation you'd see it a couple other times in scripture Abigail uses that to refer uh, to David when she is apologizing for the behavior of Nabal and also when David sends men says hey you seem to like David how about you come with us since your husband is dead and she uses the same word to respond. Um, Bathsheba uses the same word when she comes before David to plead for Solomon that he become king as David had promised at the end of David's life. The word for wing, kanaf, is significant. She says, spread your wing, your wings over your, over your servant. That's the same word that Ruth, that Boaz used in chapter 2, when they first met, and he said, may you be blessed by Yahweh under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she's, she's hearkening back to that. Kanaf also means the edge of a garment. So it kind of the edge of a robe. Spreading a robe over someone is symbolic of marriage. Again, getting back to that same hair-raising passage from Ezekiel. And he says, when I passed by you again and saw you were at the, ti- the age for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you. So same, uh, 
same exact phrase. And this is common in like Middle Eastern symbolism even today. The spreading of a robe over someone is symbolic of, of marriage. So she's, she's clear on who she is relative to him, what she's asking him to do. And why does she say, because you are a goel? Goel, we, we translate it redeemer, but it's interesting. It's a little bit more legal than that. It's someone who has a right to take something back. So it's not kind of this ethereal concept. A goel, the first one of the ways you never see it translated is the avenger of blood. It's literally the redeemer of blood. Somebody took a life from your family and it is your right and responsibility to go get it back. So referred in a couple other ways. It was somebody who had the right to buy back land. The land was supposed to stay in the family. It was somebody who had the right to go get that land back for the family. And if somebody was sold as a slave to a foreigner, it was somebody who had the right to go buy their family back and bring them back into the people of Israel. So we'll look at that a little bit more next time, but that Goel concept is significant. So what is Ruth doing? Naomi sent her out because Naomi wanted Ruth to get something for herself, and Ruth is getting something for Naomi. She is not asking just for security for herself. She is asking Boaz to redeem her family. She's asking him, and we'll see all the context of what she's asking. It's a bold ask, but she's saying, redeem our family, buy back our land, give me Naomi's heir. All of that is wrapped up in that goel, the the redeemer. She's not just saying, marry me. She's saying, redeem this house. And she's doing it very in in the humblest way possible. Because, I mean, remember, her life, virtue, reputation, safety, all of that are in this man's hands. She does not have cards to play here. But she humbly asks for a bold thing. And Boaz, now we get to see his character on display. Guy is pretty quick. (laughs) You wake me up in the middle of the night after I have had a big party and a lot to drink, and surprise me, the guy is on it. He immediately realizes what she's doing, why she's doing it, and puts all of this together. Powerful example. Like People are like, well, you know, I had a lot to drink, so I can't really be held responsible for my actions. This guy is impressive. And so he realizes that Ruth is not doing this for herself. She's doing this for Naomi, for Malan, and Elimelech, and that whole, the whole family, this whole family that needs redemption. And so his response, verse 10, may you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So again, Boaz blesses her in the name of Yahweh, just like he did in chapter two. 
again, kind of tying in, right? He blesses her and says, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. She, she says, the wings comment, I would like you to do that. And he affirms, yes, I will be Yahweh. I will represent Yahweh to you, right? Pronounces this blessing. And he refers to the kindness. It says the kindness. The word that's used is chesed, right? Which is this kind of loaded loaded term. It's normally translated steadfast love in your ESV. You see it all over. It normally refers to God. What was the first? So he says, you've made this one greater than the first one. What was the first one? Well, it was when Ruth abandoned her homeland, all her security, her family, her prospects, everything to cling to Naomi and the people of God and to serve Naomi in that way, which was a a sacrifice of her whole life. She sacrificed essentially her whole life to serve Naomi. And Boaz says, this is even more than that because you did not go after Chabahurim. Essentially, like, it's translated the young men. It's more like, like the young bucks, right? Like the, the young, virile, you know, handsome, got it going on, which shocks us because we've been reading the kind of paperback version of Ruth where Boaz looks something like Fabio, he wasn't one of Habahurim. According to Jewish tradition, he was like 80 years old. And again, you can't go off Jewish tradition, but he is much more likely to be the same age as Naomi than the age of Ruth. So you're like, oh, okay. That changes the perspective. First, she gave her life to follow Naomi into this other country, basically gave up her life to do that. Now, she's giving up her life again to become Boaz's wife, to redeem this family. And he praises her for this. And he says, verse 11, do not fear my daughter. What a great guy, right? He knows like how, what, a, what a spot she's in here. Do not fear. All that you have said, I will do for you. All that you have said, I will do. Why did we hear that before? That's what Ruth said to Naomi. The exact phrase, the exact words. Boaz says, all that you have said, I will do for you. Picture of the way authority works in God's economy. Those who submit to God's authority, God gives authority. Ruth submitted to her mother-in-law, and now one of the most wealthy and powerful men in the community is essentially submitting to her request. All that you've said, I will do for you. Christ is obviously the ultimate example of this, right? He submits to the will of the Father, and for this, he is given all authority and power and dominion in heaven and on earth. And what Boaz is submitting is uh, agreeing to do here is significant, right? He's going to play the part of a brother, even though he's not a brother. He's going to marry a Moabite widow. That's not going to be a reputation boost. 
He's making a financial sacrifice. He's not going to get anything for it, for his lineage, right? So why does he do it? He says in verse 11, for all the gates of my city, it's often translated kind of townsmen, but it's literally all the gates of my city know that you are a worthy woman. Gates of my city, that's interesting because it it evokes like the elders, those who are in the gates. Sort of a sense of like the people, the the people whose opinion matter, right? Gates are associated with elders and judgment, righteousness, sort of where justice happens. So he, he doesn't, he's not concerned with the opinions of people who don't matter. The people who see clearly know, of which he is one, know that you are an ishet ha'il, a worthy woman. This phrase, ishet ha'il, is found only two other times in Scripture, both in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 12.4 and 31.10. And there, they're both translated in your ESV as an excellent wife. It's the same words. And also, significantly, remember who Boaz was when he was introduced at the beginning of chapter 2. He was introduced as the Ishgibor Ha'il, the man of great worth or power. Well, this is the woman of power or worth. They are a good match, right? The worthy woman and the worthy man. And it's not insignificant that in the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, they put the book of Ruth smack dab between the end of Proverbs, so Proverbs 31, and the Song of Solomon to ground both what a woman ought to be and biblical romance within a marriage. Right in between those is the book of Ruth, this practical narrative that illustrates both. So he's, he's doing this tremendous thing for Naomi. For Ruth, he's astounded by her faithfulness. Right? He comments on this, but he knows that she is a woman of, of worth. And so he agrees to her request. But there's a catch, verses 12 and 13. There is another redeemer in the way. This, again, the fact that he speaks of this confirms that he knows clearly what she's asking him to do. She's not just asking him to marry her. If, he, if that's all she was asking, he would have, that would have been a different thing. He could have just, yeah, yes or no, right? All that's within his power. This is a different legal matter. She's asking him to redeem her whole household, and that involves some complicated legal transactions that we will learn about next time. But he can't just, he has to be careful. He has to be shrewd in this matter. And you could ask, well, is he just kind of weaseling out? Is he saying, yeah, I'll do it, but only if this other guy doesn't do it first? I don't think so. We'll get into that more next time. But it's clear that if he just marries Ruth, that is not solving their problem, and that is not fulfilling the request, the bold request that Ruth has made. So more on that next time, but that's the, that's the hook for this other redeemer that comes first comment. So then he says, remain the night, 
right? She stays the night, lay down. It says, lay down until the morning. And then it talks about how she laid his feet until the morning. The word there, again, going back, like this whole thing crackles with all this imagery. That word doesn't. That word just basically refers to the passage of time. There's other words that you could use to be like, and she stayed the night. <clears throat> and they don't use that word. The, the narrator doesn't. So it's very clear that the narrator wants you to understand that nothing untoward happened in this case. Why does she spend the night? Well, I think he's, he's looking out for her safety. She took enough of a risk coming here already. He's not going to send her back. So... She, keep, she stays with him until the morning. Again, right? He, so he's got this giant pile of barley because they finished winnowing, and then they had their party, and then he's laying on the pile of barley so nobody could come steal his barley without him waking up. And she stays there because they're in that position of safety. But in the morning, he says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So that's significant. He's not only protecting both of their reputations, he's also protecting the plan. Because if it could be suggested that there was already something between them, then what he's about to do is not going to be as effective. Again, we'll learn more about that next time. But he's, he's a sharp cookie He's caring for her, he's protecting her reputation and safety, he's protecting his reputation, and he's got his eye on the plan. That brings us through verse 14. But let's pause and look at how beautiful this is. That we all got into this mess when Elimelech put the safety and health of his family first, sells everything, kind of cashes out his chips in the people of God and goes to the enemy for his own selfishness. And now we've come to the point where Naomi is putting Ruth first in her thoughts and Ruth is putting Naomi first in her thoughts. And in a setup where the inevitable conclusion that you were supposed to draw as the reader was that this would end in selfishness and exploitation. That was the only possible conclusion that you were supposed to come to from all of the motif in this passage. What you see is selflessness and charity. Both people, both Boaz and Ruth, their first inclination being to think about somebody else. And there's something here for us in that sin is not inevitable. The work of the Holy Spirit in God's people, even in this passage, is on display. And we see both that the sin is not inevitable and also the way of escape that God has given. So I, I talk to my kids about repentance. If God's law says, don't walk towards that wall, and I'm walking, have I repented yet? George, have I repented? What about now? Yeah. The word for repentance means to turn. To turn away. It's going the other way. 
And sin, particularly sexual sin, is rooted in selfishness. And so the means that God gives to escape that, to repent of it and turn the other way, is to devote your life to the service of other people, to to fill your life with doing things that you don't necessarily want to do in service to others. And that is how, through the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but God works, he, he works through us. He works with our, um, he, he gives us the, the gift of repentance, and that comes in the form of obedience. And you see, you see the Holy Spirit here in both their circumstances and character all throughout this story. So then, verse 15, what, what does Boaz do? What is his pledge to Ruth and to Naomi? Because he says, you, may, you must not go back to your mother-in-law. Verse 17 says, you must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So Boaz knows both who's behind this and who is being helped. This is not just for Ruth. He wants to, to send a visible symbol of his commitment. So it's not just Ruth's word. Well, this is what Boaz said. He wants her to be able to show something. This is what he said, and this is what he meant. So, he says, six measures. Hold hold out your garment, and he measures out six measures. Almost certainly six seahs of barley. I happen to have brought six seahs of something, or at least the same weight as six seahs of barley. And I would challenge most people to try to pick it up. That is 80 pounds right there. That is what Ruth brought back to Naomi. And there's some other symbolism here of, all right, see if I can even do this. If she's carrying it in her front like this, imagine this was my robe. I'd be thinking Maria Bercompass vibes here. What's she going to look like? That's just like incredible. Also, seven is the Hebrew number of completeness. Six is the Hebrew number of incompleteness. So not only is this an enormous pledge, but Boaz is subtly communicating I'm not finished. There's more seed to come, right? All right. I don't deadlift 80 pounds often enough. So it says he puts it on her, right? This idea of like, she was winded too, right? She had to walk all the way back into town with that. Again, highlighting... Ruth's incredible physical strength, right? Boaz is the man who means in him is strength. Ruth, I don't know what her name, like her name doesn't refer to strength. She's clearly strong, right? They're physically strong, they're spiritually strong. In this narrative, both of them are given countless opportunities to make wrong and selfish choices and they consistently choose the path of righteousness, They are the grain. They are the wheat 
that the threshing floor revealed in this story. The threshing floor has done its work, and now we see clearly who Boaz and Ruth are. They are weighty people. In Hebrew, the word for glory literally just means weighty. It means you're heavy, substantial. You're not chaff. And then we get to verses 16 through 18. We get kind of the ultimate cliffhanger here. It's interesting when uh, Ruth comes home, Naomi says, asks an odd question, who are you, my daughter? It's translated often something like, how did it go? But literally, it's this same miat that Boaz exclaimed when he saw her, when he sensed her presence that night. Who are you, my daughter? No one's quite sure what this means. I kind of humorously like to think that it's saying, uh, so are you Mrs. Boaz? Um, but certainly that's the sense of what happened. And Ruth explains. Naomi says, sit and wait. The man will do as he said. He will take care of this matter today. And so we leave Ruth right where we started. She's once again been faithful, done everything that was asked of her, done everything you could expect, and she's waiting for someone else to act. And so we're left kind of asking the same question as Naomi, like, who is Ruth? Here is this woman who is constant in her faithfulness and clinging to the people of God. She's active in her obedience and employing herself in the good work that God has given her to do. Patient, now we see, in waiting salvation. She can do no more, and she waits. And that's where it brings us to us, because Ruth is the Ishat Ha'il, the, the Proverbs 31 woman. So you're like, okay, well, that applies to women. Good for them. Except, who are we? Revelation 21, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. If you are part of the people of God, then this passage applies to you because we are the bride of Christ and we are to be being prepared for him. And so there's a very real sense in which we are supposed to live out and learn from everything that we see on display here because we're waiting for the bridegroom too. We're in the same spot Ruth is here in this narrative. We have an enormous pledge, right? We're waiting for the bridegroom and we have a pledge from him that he will return. And that pledge is the guarantee of the Holy Spirit who is preparing us for the bridegroom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for and praise you for the redemption that you have purchased for us in Christ. We ask that you would help us to follow the examples that we have seen of selflessness and obedience and faithfulness. 
that we would submit to those that you have placed over us, trusting that you are using all means and working all means together for our good uh, to conform us to the image of your Son. We ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to be diligent in treating others as more significant than ourselves and that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed for the great day of redemption. And we wait for it with longing. Lord, hasten the day and help us to be prepared. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Redeemer. Amen.